an investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. A special programming note. If you're listening to the Outside In podcast in anything like real time, meaning late June, early July, 2023, this episode will end season three and we're taking our summer break. We'll be back in the fall and we've already got an absolutely amazing guest to start season four. Thanks so much for listening. Use the break to catch up on some podcasts you haven't heard. And for now, thoroughly enjoy this session of Outside In with John McCumnick. Thanks for listening. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to welcome Greg Taxon. Greg is one of those people who is known and respected in the inner sanctums of American capitalism. After working as a lawyer and an investment banker, Greg co-founded and served as CEO of Glass Lewis, one of the duopoly of proxy advisory services, which advised virtually every major institutional investor on how to vote on contentious mergers, acquisitions, and other transactions, as well as more routine, but no less important issues, such as executive compensation and who should serve on a company's board of directors. He left Glass Lewis to run two activist investing organizations, taking stakes in underperforming companies and trying to implement change. For the past 16 years, he's run Spotlight Advisors. Spotlight counsels both activist investors and the companies in which they invest. Greg's counsel is certainly valuable. Spotlight and Goldman Sachs are the top two most consulted firms. That means that Spotlight is higher ranked than such name brands as Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Lazard, Everport, Mullis, JP Morgan, and UPS. And Bloomberg does play Spotlight above even Bolton. As a result, Greg has examined in depth how some of America's most iconic boardrooms work or don't. So Greg has an interesting perspective on business and investing in America today, and we plan to explore it on Outside In. Welcome, Greg. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. So what's your origin story? You went to UC Berkeley, then graduated from Harvard Law School. I should mention Magda Kablali, then since as a lawyer and investment banker. But then you took this interesting twist. You started a proxy advisory service, which most people don't even know what that is. We'll get into that later. But then you left, started a whole new career as an activist shareholder, and now run a major advisory firm about activism. So what are the events or thought processes that guided that career path? How did you get to where you are today? Looking back, it maybe all um, makes more sense than it did when it was playing forward. Can't say that there was some grand plan or even that along the way I was n nudged in this direction intentionally by, by any of my many mentors. As I lived in, I assume this is true for most people's career, it, it just sort of unfolded the way it unfolded without, without much planning. Uh, there have been constant themes, certainly through my career. I've always been interested in advising people who are in 
positions of, of management and leadership and helping them with very difficult problems. And that certainly has played a role throughout my entire career. I always prefer to be, and I think I've done better at being an advisor than being a principal. Some people are the other way around, of course. And, and so that's been a, that, that's really been a driving force in sort of where I've, where I've gone over time. But to be honest, John, like the founding of Glass Lewis was a, the happenstance. It certainly wasn't a plan. And um, the stock market was a mess. As you recall, with Enron and WorldCom blow up and people worrying about the, the future of the stock market and, and governance and capital markets. And, and you know, I, I was sort of just rooting around for something meaningful to do is, is the truth, much less some grand life plan uh, to get into this, you know, weird spot of capitalism. I, I think most people's careers are like this, right? You, you, you hopefully take a smart initial, you know, job as, as someone once told me in law school, you know, go, go to the place where you have the farthest to fall down. And then, you know, over time, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll find other interesting things to go do. And, you know, if you start, if you start in the middle or the bottom, you have less place to fall. So, so start as high as you can. I think if I remember right, you were at Bank of America, the world falls apart and well, world cup, as you say, how did you, you come home and, and write down, I'm going to start a proxy advisory firm and go fund it. And, and I mean, how that process work out? What we knew about the world blowing up at the time was there was at least a lot of concern, right, about Enron, WorldCom, and a, a number of other uh, Tyco, you know, number, number of other sort of corporate scandals that I think demonstrated clearly to investors that the governance and alignment board composition, accounting practices, and executive compensation arrangements at public companies could pose a big risk to value if they weren't properly uh, designed and aligned. And, and so as a, at the time I was an investment banker and, and I had a research analyst that I worked very closely with and, and I watched, you know, his process of providing investors with research on public companies, which was entirely focused on financial performance and strategy and likelihood of achievement of, you know, future cash flow and profitability goals. And those things, of course, matter tremendously to, to value and success. But what wasn't part of his toolkit, and as far as I could tell, wasn't really part of the research toolkit on Wall Street, was a review of these important oversight and governance, accounting practices, alignment of interest functions um, that turned out to be actually quite critical to value creation or destruction. I mean, Enron alone, cost investors tens of billions of dollars. And, and the investment analysts who were covering the stock didn't spend any time, as best I could tell, looking at the accounting practices of Enron, even though it was in their 10K, right? It was, it was available to be analyzed, but it wasn't actually looked at or reviewed by, by the traditional sell-side analysts. And so a, a friend of mine and I thought there ought to be you know, a role and an opportunity for a research firm to focus on these important extra financial issues that can and have affected value significantly. And, and someone really ought to write essentially research on these sorts of alignment, governance, oversight, compensation issues so that investors had an early warning or some, some way of essentially detecting companies that, that might be uh, undertaking riskier practices or questionable accounting. And 
we had the idea of writing what initially was going to be kind of two page tear sheets on companies that sort of laid out some of these practices and like, would they, you know, w does this company sort of fit within the mainstream yeah. or are they doing things that create risk? And we went and saw Ted White at CalPERS. My friend Kevin Cameron and I were living in San Francisco at the time and CalPERS was close by and we knew they cared about these governance questions. And, and so I think on a Saturday, actually, we cold called Ted White, who was at the time running the, the governance division or the governance portfolio uh, of CalPERS. And actually, much to our surprise, on a Saturday, he picked up the phone, probably actually not what we wanted. We, we, we were probably too timid. We, we, we were thinking we'd leave him a message and we're probably secretly hoping he wouldn't call us back. But, but instead, he picked up the phone and he said, oh, that's a, that's a really great idea. You should come up and see us and you know, let's talk about it, whatever. And we went up there to, to, to see Ted. And he gave us the idea for Glass Lewis, to be, to be perfectly frank. He said, you know, this stuff all sounds great, but who's ever going to read this research? Like the time when investors get to weigh in on these important governance questions and board composition questions is at the annual meeting. And so what you ought to do is write this research with an eye toward advising investors on how to vote at the annual meeting, because that's when they get to weigh in. My, my friend's a, a, an accomplished uh, lawyer as well. And we looked at each other and we said, annual meetings. Yeah, I, I kind of remember something about that from law school and, and proxies and all this stuff, you know, but we, we didn't really know much about it, to be honest. Nevertheless, I will say in that first meeting with Ted, we, which was in, I think, March, right before annual meeting season, um, we committed to writing research on the S&P 500 on every meeting at every company and, and, and delivering advice, which would have been in April and, and, and May. And I remember we got back in the car to go back to San Francisco and we said, how the hell are we going to do this? We have no idea what we're doing. We, we, we went on eBay and we bought some printers, used printers, because we couldn't afford new ones and hired, in quotes, uh, you know, friends, mostly cajoled them uh, into helping us. And we turned our research, you know, in that first year on, on the S&P 500 because Ted White told us we should. And thus was born one of the two global proxy advisory services. Great story. Ted is a, a friend and a former client, and I had never heard that story, so I'm glad I, glad I did. So that's the past. Let's, let's look at the future. I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but as you say, you're going through things, you're seeing what's in the 10K or what's not in mainstream pattern. Um, and that's what proxy advisors, and to be honest, data providers to the financial services sector generally do, is... You go through financial reports and proxy statements, buy sell side reports, industry reports, et cetera, and you apply that knowledge to a particular set of issues that you're being asked to vote on in the case of a proxy advisor or more generally for data. So in effect, what you're doing is pattern recognition and of course a large but defined body of information. Now, I don't want to undervalue the expertise of proxy advisors or other analysts, but what I've just described is sort of nirvana for artificial intelligence applications. So let me ask you to look at the crystal ball, having told the story of the month past. Do you think AI is going to change proxy advice and perhaps investing research generally? Absolutely, it will. And, and I think you've laid out the case for it persuasively here. Just listening to someone talk about how in a, in a totally different area, in, in travel, Sabre, for example, has all the underlying flight and hotel information. And Orbitz has built a business, you know, effectively on top of that, obviously adding intelligence and a, an easy to use user interface, and it has a bunch of algorithms. So what Sabre has is sort of critical inputs 
but the decision engine that then processes that information and comes out with either, you know, here's the flight you ought to take, or here's the five flights that might be of interest, or in the case of, of a proxy advice, you know, here are the directors to vote against or a, or a pay, you know, practice that has proven to misalign interest, right? That decision layer is something that I do think can be disintermediated by artificial intelligence over time. It'll always be, of course, a role for judgment, for human judgment. And there'll be exceptions that only humans understanding the particular circumstances of a company or a director or a you know pay package or the future are likely you know to be able to provide good judgment on. And so I think there'll always be a role for expert human oversight or the layer. But I do think a lot of the work that's done today by ISS and Glass Lewis with junior analysts who are in the the process of taking the raw data, the orbits data, and you know laying it out on a page nicely and checking the raw data against a, a rule book, that 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 can certainly be disintermediated, and I like think likely would and will by AI. Okay, let's move on to activism for a bit. For many Americans, we don't care whether an activist like Carl Icahn wins a seat on a board of a company. He's targeted or doesn't. Most Americans view it as a remote vest, and you know, two rich guys, and they're usually guys battling it out. It's entertaining, but it's entertaining the way that you know, succession is you know, we it's power and ego and money colliding. But where's the relevance to us? What who should we root for? Why should we care? Now, at the same time, people in the business and economists see having a robust merger and acquisition and control market is important and salutary for the economy. So tell me, why are these activist battles good for capitalism, good for the economy, good for society, or are, or are they just egos colliding? No, they're not just ego. I mean, there's an aspect of them that is certainly egos colliding, but um, there is a very important function that they serve, I think, in our capital markets. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of proud to be part of the ecosystem. I think activism generally in the, in the M&A market, as you say, the market for corporate control, um, are critical instruments to ensure accountability at public companies and with the capital that they deploy. And so taking a half a step back, what I would say is in every capital market, there are underperforming companies. There are companies that are using capital in a suboptimal way, taking the retirement funds of, you know, teachers and firefighters and cops and, and everyday Americans and deploying it in a way that doesn't generate great returns for the company, for the investors and for those, you know, future retirees. And we need as a capital markets, a system by which those underperforming companies uh, are forced to correct their ways. And as I say, you know, by process of elimination, there's always the bottom 20 companies or, you know, 10% or 5%, whatever. I mean, you, you know, you force rank everybody. There's some companies at the bottom that are crummy. And the question is, how are, how are we as a, as a society going to get those companies back on the right path? And there's really, you know, two ways that humans have developed over time. One is substantive regulation, where some overseer regulator comes in and tells those companies, hey, you're doing this wrong. You got to do it this way. Here's the rule book. Um, that turns out not to be very effective, I think, over the course of time, over, over history. I think it's proven to, to what we've learned is that 
regulators are short-sighted. They're not, they're not future oriented. They're not always, they don't always have their interests aligned. You know, there's a whole, whole series of problems with, with the regulated approach. And the other approach is you, you, you let markets and the individual actors in the market aggregate their sentiment and have a mechanism by which they can enforce accountability. And the mechanism at the end for a company that's underperforming is that its investors, its owners kind of rise up and insist on change. And, and they insist on change through cajoling and letter writing and interacting with the board and the management team and trying to push people in the right direction. But ultimately, there needs to be a mechanism by which the owners can enforce their perspective that the company needs to head in a different direction. And, and the takeover market provides some of that accountability. That is to say, if a company's underperforming its potential, uh, its, its, its brand, its technology, its place in the world, its market position, whatever, then someone else will come along, have a twinkle in their eye, realize, hey, more can be created here from these piece parts, and we'll put a proposal on the table to buy the place and ultimately use those assets in a better way. Activism is the, the accountability mechanism by which the existing owners can enforce a different perspective on how the company ought to be operated going forward. And I just think it's a super important escape valve in a capital markets to have um, it's a sort of a libertarian idea, I guess, but, you know, allow the owners to regulate the company and have ultimate authority um, to make change at that company. And, and you do that through shareholder activism. And, and, and by the way, I don't think you need very many of these actions every year to help the capital markets. And what we have certainly seen, I would tell you from our advisory practice, is that Every board, every board sits around and worries about the perspective of their shareholders. Are they performing as well as they can be for shareholders? Is someone going to come knocking on their door and tell them that they're not doing a great job? And, and that sort of general effect, that general deterrence or that general accountability effect is massive. I, I think it's a great thing for our capital markets that they're sort of self-regulating in this way. And, and there is a mechanism by which, by which the owners uh, can express a view and, and actually have it implemented if they ultimately, as a majority of the owners, uh, you know, get together and agree. So you make affirmative choices as to who you choose to work for. So what makes a, I'm going to say a good activist or a bad one or a good situation or a bad one? And perhaps more importantly, how do you judge a good outcome versus a bad one? Is it just a stock price rise or is it a more fundamental long-term change to business plan or culture? Or how, 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 when we look at the end of this, how do we decide it's a good outcome for the company and for the economy generally? Well, I'm not sure there's a single measuring stick that I would suggest can be used to, to measure these things. But in general, right, I think what we're looking for is does the company with a minimum amount of distraction and expense, which is, which is just sort of leakage, economic leakage, stay on or get on a better strategic path, right? With a, with a board that can help guide and oversee the company and, you know, aligned interests and, and, and good practices. I will tell you that most of the companies that we work for think they're on that path already. And many of them are, by the way, there are some significant, I would say, 
you know, information dissymmetry between what a board knows and the choices they've made and the strategy that, you know, and the reasons for the strategy that they've chosen and, and what investors know and from the outside. And often that information dissymmetry leads to some disagreement about the path forward. But I would say that, um, you know, companies very frequently think they're already on that path. So I wouldn't judge the outcome based on the amount of change the company, because sometimes the, the right answer is that the company is already on the right path. I think the other aspect of your question, which is important, is, you know, what, what makes for a good activist investor? And I think we've seen the market segment a little bit. There, there are activist investors who have a track record of helping companies create value and have created value for their own investors and have seen their funds do very, very well by investing in companies that aren't being run optimally and where they can help turn the company to a, you know, to a, to a better strategy or a better plan and thereby create excess returns um, for their funds. And, and so there's a number of these funds that have done very, very well, and they have gathered assets because of that. They're quite large. And, and then there are a whole smattering of, of, of activists who I think don't have a great track record, actually. And when you, when you peel back the onion and look at either their list of suggestions or their list of targets and the ones that implemented some portion of what they wanted and haven't done well, you, you sort of throw up your hands and say, well, it's not clear to me, actually, that, that, that these investors know any better than anybody else, you know, how, you know, some retailer or restaurant company or whatever industrial company, you know, ought to be run. And yeah, they got a big bullhorn, but don't actually have a, you know, there, there's sort of no facts that suggest that they're actually very good at this. And, and, and so there's quite a bifurcation, I think, in the market between some rather accomplished, successful and large activists who, when they speak, are worth listening to carefully because they have a great track record. And then there's the louder, in our experience, more disruptive, noisier, less successful activists, you know, who I think, you know, look, they can have good ideas too. And I'm not, I'm not discounting that, that, that sort of they never have good ideas, but, but I think who are properly viewed skeptically by management teams. Interesting. In investing, more generally, not just activism, obviously one of the biggest changes is ESG, and I'm not going to get into the current controversies on, on that, but, but clearly companies have developed strategies about things like global warming and diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and, and other things that are often on an industry by industry basis, like antimicrobial resistance or mining safety. With the exception of a very small activist campaign two years ago, Engine One winning seats on the board of directors at Exxon by focusing on Exxon's climate record. I haven't really seen those issues be front and center. They're often ancillary, but front and center at these sort of control situations. How do you see ESG playing out in activist situations? I, I think your summary of it is, is, is uh, not surprisingly, is, uh, is spot on here. We really, we, we've seen some activists try to glom on to some of these ESG issues as fodder for their request for change. But, but other than at Exxon, uh, and arguably maybe not even there, you know, these issues have not played, you know, the frontline role or the, you know, the principal argument for a change in board composition 
or other meaningful, you know, governance changes or, or the policy changes at, at, at companies by the traditional set of, of, of activists. And, and I think that's not random or not a happenstance. I mean, I think the reason is that most institutional investors who make up the majority of the voting electorate or the, you know, the electorate at any given company are focused on creating returns for their investors or their limited partners or their, you know, mutual fund unit holders. And, um, and, and to the extent that you can tie the campaign to how this makes the company more valuable, allocate capital better, generate better returns, they're a ready audience for uh, an activist or an investor. I think when the issues become more about the externalities of a company's impact on the world, those, I think, fund managers, at least in my experience, those fund managers tend to be less interested in exercising one of their rights as a shareholder to, you know, to help the planet as opposed to help their uh, LPs more directly with, with financial returns. I, I think in the end, in order to get votes and in order to, to run a, you know, a successful activist campaign, you've got to be focused on how the company can generate better returns inside of its four walls for its investors. And so far, with very limited exceptions, I would say that the ESG movement's been as has not made a a compelling case yet for 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 how these ESG practices and principles will lead to stronger cash flows or better returns. Yeah, I should say we both probably bespoke because clearly the G is central in all the activist situations. So you're really talking about environmental and social. And I, I think sorry. that there is a, as you know from the work I've done, a compelling case for considering environmental and social in turn, but not in terms of a differentiated return at an individual company. So as That's long, right. I mean, I do think that companies have to start focusing on their inside out materiality, if you will, but as opposed to just the outside in. One of the great fun of doing this series of podcasts, and we're now up to 75 or so, is you get to do research on people you thought you knew. And so in doing research on you, I find that you are now an executive producer of a movie, Avenue of the Giants, a film about the story of a man who kept his experience as a teenage boy surviving for years at the Nazi Auschwitz death camp hidden, even from his family. Films basically completed during the fall festival season and looking to have a theatrical release in 2024. As far as I go, this is your first foray into filmmaking. How'd you get involved with it and why'd you choose to do it? Yeah, it's, it's definitely the first, uh, first foray. And I, I would, I would say I'm very much a bit player in this. One of my dearest friends, Janine Thomas met this man in, in Mill Valley late in his life and was just so moved by his story and the need for his story about the horrors of the Holocaust to be widely told that she's made it sort of her life mission to write and, and produce this film. And it's a compelling story. I was thrilled to play a very small part in just sort of helping with the, the funding of it, but it's, it's really Jean's, you know, vision and, and amazing dedication 
to this this man who unfortunately has passed away and his and getting his story out that that has led to this project and we're we're expecting it to be what what hopefully a, a widely viewed and and motivating or at least important you know story for for people to to experience and learn from what's exciting to you right now what are you passionate about and why it, it it's hard to be alive in in June of 2023 and and not be excited about the prospects of uh, artificial intelligence. Both both maybe excited and a little nervous and terrified about what it means for for our society and for our kids and in our future. Um, and so I'm I'm sort of glued to my Twitter feed. I have to say on uh, on all topics related to AI, it's a truly remarkable technology. I'm, I'm not saying anything that people don't already know, but I'm I'm just astounded regularly by by the new developments and and the speed with which those developments are are, are coming out and um i think it's going to radically change the way we work and the way we create and i think it's going to happen in a short period of time so it's an, that's the most exciting i think set of developments and technologies you know in our certainly now and maybe it's going to prove to be i think it will likely prove to be in our lifetimes so we're right at the moment of creation for that. At least that's what it feels like. I'm, I'm sure there's been people toiling away on this for, for decades, but, but, but I think for the general population, this feels like, you know, the moment and, um, it's, it's truly remarkable. Let, let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? I don't really relax, John. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm running a small business, um, you know, an advisory business and my, my, my wife and kids would tell you it's a 24 seven endeavor, but, um. We don't do a lot of relaxing. What music do you listen to? So I'm a I'm a big '80s uh, music fan. I'm I'm going in a couple of weeks or just a couple of months to the Depeche Mode concert. Uh, you know, I, I, I love uh, '80s alternative rock, and I, I fear I'm a little bit like my parents, listening to you know music from their childhood and driving my kids crazy with it. But anyway, that's the that's the best music that was ever created in my view. What are you reading right now? I'm I'm reading uh, two things. What one is um, Mike Pompeo's book from his time as Secretary of State uh, in the Trump administration. Mike and I went to law school together, and he's a a good friend, and and so it's been interesting to read his book from inside the the Trump administration, which I I, guess I shouldn't comment on further. And then I'm reading a book on the Supreme Court and its recent turn with uh, you know to to sort of more conservative bent. And it's got some, some great behind the scenes, you know, insights. Which book is it? Do you know? It's called Black Robes. Um, I was probably another word in there. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you be? I think it would be, well, the easy places to go are places that I love, like, like Berlin, um, which is, uh, an, an amazing city for art and architecture and, and history, obviously, or, or Atutaki, which is a little island in the South Pacific where I went with my wife on our honeymoon and was probably the most relaxing you know, pl place to ever be. But, but I probably should go to some place I've never been. And, you know, among those uh, that I think would be just, uh, you know, fascinating would, would be, you know, the Arctic, which I just think not enough people get to see. And it's, it, I think it really demonstrates the, that the, uh, nature ultimately uh, has a lot more power than humans over what happens on this planet. Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them? I, I think it's um, to, to try to see the good in other people and, and assume that other people's motives are pure. As I, my experience has been that most people operate from a position 
uh, of good faith. And there are, of course, exceptions. But I think we get ourselves as a society into lots of trouble when we, we start from the premise that, that people are self-interested and self-motivated and a bad, you know, have bad motives. Um, and I think it's largely untrue, and, but it spirals. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukomnik with our special guest, Greg Taxon. Greg knows more about activist situations than virtually anyone else in the United States, more about proxy advisory services, and therefore more about the nexus of governance, power, money, and corporate America. It's nice to catch up with them. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukomnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukomnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.